friends and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we have a packed show for you today. We are deep into Lent, so we have invited our good friend and Catholic author, Mike Aquilina, to join us to discuss how we can have a more fruitful Lent focusing on the liturgy and in light of his new book, How the Fathers Read the Bible, Scripture, Liturgy, and the Early Church. But first, this week, uh, Governor Ron DeSantis of my own great state of Florida uh, signed the Parental Rights and Education Bill. You won't hear it called that in the media. They're they're using a, a very bad title for it, which isn't true. We're going to talk about this with Mary Hassan. She joins us from the Ethics and Public Policy Center, where she is the director of the Person and Identity Project. That project is uh, has been formed to assist the Catholic Church in promoting the Catholic vision of the human person and responding to the challenges of gender ideology. Welcome back to the show, Mary. Thanks so much, Gracie. It's wonderful to, uh, to talk with you again. Yes, it's been a while since you've been on. I'm glad to, uh, I'm very happy that you've made the time for us. Um, you're always so wise and you're always so on top of everything that's going on, which is very difficult to keep up with for people who don't work in this field, who don't have all day to look at the news. And even if they do have all day to look at the news, it's very hard to really get underneath uh, the media narrative and really find out what's going on. And I have found this especially egregious with this uh, new bill that the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, signed this month. It's actually called the Parental Rights and Information Law. And, of course, it's been billed horribly all across the United States in big, bold letters everywhere you look as the Don't Say Gay Bill. And the bill doesn't say anything like that. So what's the what's the landscape been out there? Well, it's like a giant fog machine mm-hmm. that has, uh, I, I think, made it very difficult for parents who honestly want to understand what's happening or voters who want to understand what this bill is about to really pierce through that fog and and see what's the purpose, what's it going to do, and why is it necessary. And I think the easiest way to do that is to look at the terms of the bill. And so it's been mislabeled, as you said, uh, into the don't say gay bill, but it says nothing about that. It really is aimed at reinforcing the fact that it's parents who raise children and parents who need to be, to have the power and the freedom to exercise their own judgment about when to introduce certain topics to their children. So it, it limits the school, especially when you're dealing with sensitive topics, it it specifies sexual orientation and gender identity. When you're dealing with those topics with young children, kindergarten through third grade, it simply says that uh, there should be no classroom instruction on those topics during those years. And I I think that's an important thing for people to understand. It's a limited, targeted bill that addresses what has become a problem. And that's, that's the reason why this bill was, became necessary because we have 
in so many schools across the country, teachers who are introducing materials related to sexual orientation and gender identity just on their own initiative. In some places, there's there's formal curricula that does that. But a lot of it is just coming in through, through teachers who may be well-meaning, but are intruding upon a topic and a, a child's development in a way that is very troubling. And, and that's what this bill is designed to address, to put the power back in the hands of parents who know their kids best, to judge when and how to introduce certain topics to their children. One thing that confuses people is that unless you have little children in school or you're paying very close attention, you might say to yourself, well, this is silly because nobody's talking to kindergartners and first graders about sexual identity and gender ideology. Is that true? No, no, it, it's quite the opposite. In fact, we have seen an explosion of materials for pre-K, kindergarten, and those early elementary years designed to introduce them to topics like sexual orientation, gender identity, all different kinds of families. That's Those kinds of materials, just sort of family diversity, have been around now for decades. But what's new in the past 10, but especially five years, has been the development of materials designed specifically to teach kids this new language. Who are you? Well, I am who I feel I am, my gender identity. And how do you figure that out? Well, by whether you you like certain kinds of toys or certain kinds of activities, etc. And that telling children literally that they are the only ones who can decide who they are not the, their bodies don't give them a clue their parents their birth certificate nothing is relevant information that they're supposed to start kind of from the inside out and figure out literally who they are and you know I, i'm not exaggerating this because if you look at for example scholastic which provides a lot of school materials even for catholic schools unfortunately uh, it, i used to love it when there would be scholastic book fairs but they now have whole sections dedicated to introducing these topics to young kids. So there's one one book that I remember looking at that's called Who Are You? And it literally says to children, again, putting things down at the level of kids, when you were born, the doctors took a look at your body and made a guess as to who you are. But only you know for sure. And so that's to introduce this idea of gender identity that a child <laughs> can yeah, it, it's it's so it's unscientific, it's ideological. It's intrusive, it's destabilizing, and, and more to the point, what business does a teacher, even a well-meaning teacher, have introducing that? They have no idea what's going on in that child's home life, what their fears are, what their worries are, and, and we've seen accounts of children who are exposed to this kind of uh, instruction which encourages them to to kind of ignore the truth of their body and start, quote, exploring these other identities, the kids get very destabilized. They, they get worried. They think they're going to, the very youngest, think they're going to turn into someone different. And, and so it, it's just intrusive on top of the fact that it's not accurate, it's not true, and it's ideological. So this is unfortunately flourishing in our educational marketplace, just the production of these materials. And, and again, they're not, not typically a part of the formal curriculum because that would mean they have to go through a process. They're usually brought in as digital resources that uh, the teachers receive from their, their teacher networks or from 
uh, activist organizations, or or through books, library books, and and there's been an emphasis within school librarians who who tilt left. People may not realize that, but there are surveys showing that they really tilt left in their own views. There's been an effort on their part to really bring in. Uh, books at the for the youngest ages that introduce these topics because they feel like it's their job or their role to make sure that every child uh, begins to think about these issues and and potentially sees themselves as someone who might be uh, identify as transgender or gay or lesbian and and so it's it's really school personnel taking on a role that is not theirs. And that's what Governor DeSantis, uh, DeSantis really just came forcefully behind parents and said, no, we recognize there are limits on what the school should do. We recognize parents, this is your role, and we're going to respect that. And we're going to make sure there's a place for parents to have a seat at the table in terms of deciding what's appropriate for their children. Mary, you brought up something very interesting. And um, outside of the idea that young children are being told that, uh, you know, sexual practices and and your sexuality is an amoral thing that you just sort of choose and you can fluidly flow Mm -hmm. into different things. And obviously, as Catholics, we don't believe that. We think that man was made for woman and woman for man and and sex is for a sacramental union of one man and one woman. And so that intrudes on all our beliefs, Mm -hmm. right, and our ethics and morality about the family and and marriage and, and and the way people can use their sexuality responsibly and in a way that's sacramental and holy, right? Mm -hmm. But putting all that aside, you mentioned the word destabilizing. And I was just thinking, I was thinking back to being a child and and growing up a little rough, being moved around. It was right after my parents' Mm -hmm. exile from Cuba. And... I I knew there was a lot of certainty in me, even though my my surroundings were very uncertain and very variable, that I was I was nested in all sorts of different identities that never changed no matter where I was. And that was, you know, mm-hmm. first I was a daughter of God. I was a daughter. I was a little girl, not a little boy. Mm-hmm. I was my parents' chi- beloved child. I was a sister. I was a granddaughter. I was a Catholic girl. I was all these things that were so certain for me. And that certainty... Mm-hmm lent a stability to my life that otherwise I wouldn't have. So what are we doing to young children when we tell them that everything is up for grabs, including that most deep and intimate part of ourselves, which is our our femininity or our masculinity and our sexuality? What are we doing to these children? Yeah, it's literally uprooting them. And I heard a Protestant pastor um, say one time that when you teach kids that things that are certain are matters of choice, the result is chaos. Mm-hmm. And I think that's exactly right. That, I, you know, when you wake up in the morning, well, I'll give you a little anecdote. Uh, one of our sons, when he was a young, uh, like four or five years old, used to wake up every day and ask, is it a daddy home day or a daddy work day? Because he didn't have the rhythm of the week. Mm-hmm. But he would also wake up and, and say, is it a shorts day or a pants day? Because he didn't have the rhythm of the weather. Well, imagine if you wake up and you think, a a child that young, am I a boy or am I a girl? How do I feel today? How do I figure this out? We're putting a burden on children that's not theirs. They can't change the reality of being male or female. So when you you encourage a young child to explore and, and try on different identities as if they really can change something 
you're lying to them, but you're also, you're burdening them. You're putting this huge weight on them that now they have to figure out something that is so huge and momentous as if they really can exercise mind over matter and make themselves somehow different. And in the process, they become very self-critical and and self-doubtful in terms of the reality of their bodies or liking their bodies and and even even just the idea of sexual orientation you know children until they hit puberty they're not they're not experiencing these sexual desires they they can have crushes and like someone but it's not sexualized so when you introduce concepts of sexual orientation and and talk about uh, to young children and reduce it to a description that says, well, sexual orientation is about who you love. That's inherently confusing because kids are supposed to love their best friends, which who tend to be same sex. They're, they don't have that concept of sexual desire and sexual attraction in the same way that adults do. So, so it's prematurely sexualizing feelings that are supposed to uh, have nothing to do with sex. They're supposed to be about developing grounded friendships and, and really learning how to love people and, and see yourself and understand yourself. Uh, so that's one reason why one of the governor's uh, staff members in pushing back on the don't say gay framing said, no, this is an anti-grooming bill. Mm-hmm. In other words, they, people who are trying to inject this kind of content into children's worlds where naturally they shouldn't be thinking about, uh, am I gay or lesbian or bisexual or what does that mean and how do, how do they have sex and all these things. I mean, that's, that's so inappropriate, even putting aside the moral thing, it's so inappropriate and so developmentally uh, skewed. So you have to ask, why is it that some people really want to push that? And then even more so with the gender identity aspect, because that goes to the foundational truth. We're created male or female, and you can't change sex. And and those who are pushing this concept of gender identity understand very well that you can't change sex. But what they're trying to do is make sex basically irrelevant to suggest that and and to teach early on to children that they have this autonomy over themselves to decide what's real, what's true for them, regardless of their bodies, regardless of, of the natural law, the way the world works, regardless of their religious faith. It's giving kids this, this power to say what I think, what I feel that's that becomes true. That becomes true for me. So it's introducing a relativism about the most profound things in life. And and again, I'm tremendously uh, pleased and and thankful at the governor for recognizing this intrusive aspect uh, that's been going on in education, in spite of so many good, well-meaning people who are involved in public education, but recognizing what's been happening and, and saying we have to take firm steps to make it clear that parents are the ones who have the right to decide what to say and when to say it. So the bill doesn't say anything uh, to suggest that a parent who thinks it's just fine to introduce this stuff to their parents, I I mean to their children, that, that they can't go ahead and do that on their own time. What it's saying is it's not the place of the school to address these sensitive topics at sensitive ages. We're going to respect the parents' role. They get to decide because they know their children best. And, I, you know, I would hope that parents across the political spectrum could put aside the rhetoric for a second and just think and say, you know, that makes sense. That makes sense. Parents do know their kids, and they're the ones who should be able to judge what stories to read to them and how to introduce these topics.
If you're just joining us, we're talking to Mary Hassan of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. We are talking about the new law in Florida, which is not called the Don't Say Gay Bill, <laughs> though you may not know this <laughs> right. from listening to all the stupid media. Um, there's a lot of there are a lot of things in the in the bill besides the um, or this law now that it's been signed mm -hmm. besides uh, the idea of not introducing sexual topics uh, to children mm -hmm. in the curricula be before the age of uh, nine or ten. Mm -hmm. um, But there's other things that are just as important in my mind. And uh, it, for instance, it, it reconnects the parents to what's happening in school. Because mm -hmm. many, many schools have been known, and it's probably happening in every state and in the school down the street from you, that mm -hmm. the schools are taking uh, a stance with the child. In, from a psychological and even medical perspective, and then hiding that from the parent. Mm -hmm. So children, actually, you know about you know about this much better than I do. So Mary, what are schools? What have schools been? Are cap what are they capable of, of hiding from parents? And what are they actually? What are they hiding? And why is this bill important to stop that hiding? Yeah. So in 2015, the ACLU sent a letter to all the school districts saying that. It's the law, they're misrepresenting this, but they said it's the law that schools need to respect children's privacy and not out them, not tell parents about their chosen gender identity another, or, or sexual orientation. In other words, they misrepresented the law back in 2015 under the Obama administration and said, schools, we're going to sue you if you don't create this veil of, of privacy, basically, where we're cutting parents out and we're saying that children can express a, a sexual orientation or gender identity, and we're not going to tell the parents. You can't tell the parents unless the children consent to that. So they misrepresented that as the law. That has become the policy in school districts across the country because the ACLU has sued on that ground. And there, we're finally getting some cases. There are now four, uh, maybe five cases at various in various states now where parents are pushing back and saying, you have no right to do that, school. <laughs> you know, the privacy and confidentiality laws are not designed to drive a wedge between children of any age and their parents. But Mary, That's how far, how far have schools actually gone in, down this road? Oh, they have followed that directive uh, to a T, the ACLU's policy statement, which again, it was reinforced and emphasized by all the other activist groups in that space. And from the top down, we're seeing similar things coming out of um, both state education organizations, but also in some of the regulations and examples that are proposed by the government at the highest level. And so what they've done is they literally have policies. And I'll give you an example from Montgomery County, Maryland, which is just north of where I live. Uh, because I've spoken with the school district about this fact, that they have a policy that says that, that children decide their own gender identity and children of any age and that children can initiate the process of using a different name, a different pronoun, requesting access to opposite sex bathrooms, locker rooms, activities, etc. And when a child expresses this, the school sits down with the child and they have a what they call a gender support plan and they ask the child about the parent's degree of support or how the child thinks the parent might react to the child expressing this gender identity. And 
And then they have a checklist of, you know, one to 10, where do you rate your parental support? And if they, if the school decides that the parent says, I don't know if my parents are supportive, you know, they check box five or whatever it might be. But then the school decides this is not safe or this is not wise. We're, we're cutting parents out. And they'll, they'll say, do you want us to tell your, your parents if they're not supportive? And, and so it has become a problem where they have transitioned kids, socially transitioned. And in, in case your, your listeners think that's a benign process, it's a psychological process. Because when you take a young person, whether it's a, a third grader, a seventh grader, or a tenth grader, and they say they're confused about their identity and they say, okay, I want to be treated as Johnny, not Jane. And the school starts enforcing that. The school starts calling them different names, starts providing them clothes, as some schools have done, uh, that are typically associated with the opposite sex and saying, here, when you come to school, you can put on these other clothes so you can express yourself as you want here, even if you have to go home and wear, you know, the the boring uh, sex typical clothes at home. I, that, that we're going to facilitate this. So they're engaging in a psychological process. Social transition is the first step down that path. It's it's like pushing off from a ski jump. You know, when, when we watch the mm-hmm. Olympics, we see those huge ski jumps. As soon as you push off, you are on that path. And that is what social transition does. And the schools are sticking themselves in as as a wedge between parent and child facilitating it, encouraging it, and not telling the parents unless the child specifically says, Mary, okay, you can involve my parents. It's as though there was some um, solid idea that everybody has accepted that as soon as a 11-year-old says, it, says something about gender, which they picked up on the internet or on TikTok, mm-hmm. um, then the only way to react is to affirm. And that's this is a this is a problem I'm seeing um, with people. I, sp- I speak to people, a lot of people whose children are having this problem at school, and mm-hmm. and they don't mm-hmm. the parents don't know who to turn to, because. Because yeah. there's one, there seems to be one size fit all, a one size fits all f- uh, reaction from everyone. If it's the psychologist, the counselor at school, the administration mm-hmm. at school, the teacher, um, if they can find a psychiatrist, the psychiatrist wants to affirm. Every single person seems to be flowing down that stream. Do you think that this is something that will be reversed soon? I'm seeing more and more rumbles uh, from different, you know, from those different areas of people saying, "Wait, we, you know, we went too far. Mm-hmm. This is not a one size fits all solution to a psychological." problem. Yeah, so the rising awareness and the willingness of professionals in particular to speak out and say, whoa, this is not right. This is not healthy. You can't, and it's not proven. So you mentioned at the beginning of of, um, your remarks just a second ago, you said there's sort of this assumption that some kids basically are trans, right? And parents are told, oh, your child is trans. There is, children are not transgender as if that's a third kind of person. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. Males are females and they've got wounds, they've got vulnerabilities, they can be confused. But they can't change who they are. So that's part of the myth that there's this category of, of children. Some people call them, you know, special unicorn children. It's like they're, they're these mythical creatures who are, quote, trans kids. And everyone needs to step back and kind of marvel and, and just help them on their way. But it, that's based on a lie. There is no evidence that these children are fundamentally different. Their bodies are healthy. 
they have the healthy bodies of a male or a female. What happens is they have vulnerabilities. There's a high rate of autism, ADHD diagnoses, kids with mental health issues, kids who've had adverse situations in their background, whether it's abuse or deep loss. All of those things are underlying factors that are very present in the backgrounds of kids who get drawn into this. And sometimes there's the just, it can be more simply that a child feels left out and and they don't fit in and they're looking for a group and a way to fit in and, and typically the you know the rainbow clubs the gsa clubs etc very welcoming pull them in and all of a sudden that's the place to be the thing to do is to express one of these identities and that's the social contagion takes root especially fueled by social media but parents need to have the confidence that our children are male and female there is no other option and yes they may be confused and hurting but the way to deal with that isn't to, to push them off the top of that ski jump down this, you know, this steep path where that is just going to speed along and then they're, they're going to crash when they land. Mary, the it's people who helpful. think, the people who believe that there's these special unicorn children which are going to be fluid or transgender mm-hmm. and that you can detect them at three or four years old, this is obviously something that's at, it's, it's, it's burgeoning out of control. I mean, it's everywhere. Suddenly, mm-hmm. everyone I talk to has, there's mm-hmm. three of them in each, of the, in each classroom of their yep. kids. Where were these children before? I mean, if you're on the other side mm-hmm. and you believe this, where were these strange unicorn children before? Because I grew up, you know, I'm 53. I never met a a, a unicorn child <laughs> in all my long years of being a, a child and then a teenager and then a parent. So what, where, where were they all hiding? Well, it, the answer that is often proposed to that question is, well, now they finally feel free to come out because we have a welcoming and inclusive culture, which is why it's particularly important for the schools to make sure that they're welcoming and inclusive by naming and acknowledging and encouraging exploration in this direction. So kids who may feel these things inside feel free to come out. But that doesn't pan out. Because if the culture has shifted to be more welcoming and inclusive, why aren't we seeing more 35-year-olds throwing aside the you know social oppression and saying, well, I was really trans all along? We're not. What we're seeing is this astronomical rise in children, adolescents in particular, who are expressing these transgender identities. We're not seeing that rise across the board in society as if society has thrown off these oppressive mindsets and now everyone's free to be whoever they are. It's just not true. We're seeing that children are being targeted by social media, by influencers, by what's coming through the schools in an effort to normalize this and to encourage that idea of exploration. It's like none of us would encourage our children to explore the world of drugs, right? We know it's harmful. And yet here we're encouraging children to explore a world that takes them down a a medical pathway that destroys their healthy body that sterilizes them if they if they take puberty blockers and then the cross-sex hormones you know it's it has serious consequences and so parents need to have the confidence in the truth they know they gave birth to a male or female you can't change that and the other side knows that too the gender clinics never say they're going to change someone's sex they talk about masculinizing or feminizing the body and which is interesting right sex binary but by the time a kid gets in there and is is so convinced that taking testosterone for example is going to solve her her adolescent depression they don't they don't read the fine print they don't want to hear anything else they want to hold on to that dream that if they can just be allowed to be that unicorn child and everyone supports and affirms them, it's going to wipe away all that depression they feel and that discomfort they feel and 
and, and life's going to be beautiful and wonderful and rainbows. I'm grateful parents are waking up, but you need to remember there are no do-overs on childhood. You get one chance to get it right. So true, Marion. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Gracie. Welcome back to the show, Mike. Thanks for having me back. The title of your book is very interesting because it says, How the Fathers Read the Bible. And it's about the early church fathers, the early church. And I was thinking, you know, I think we picture um, early Christians, the first first century Christians, sitting around poring over their Bibles the way we do. And probably that's not quite accurate, is it? <laughs> no, it's not. And that's the reason I wrote my book. I wanted to give people an imaginative entry into that world. It's the world of the New Testament. It's the world of the Old Testament, and it was always the way of biblical religion. And what way was that? Well, people encountered the Word of God. They encountered the inspired Word in the context of ritual public worship. We see that in the Old Testament. When Moses uh, wants to uh, reveal the law that he received from God, well, he reads it aloud. And then he sprinkles the people and says, Behold the blood of the covenant. He sprinkles them with blood um, uh, from the sacrifice. And in the new, the new covenant, when our Lord establishes the new covenant in his blood, he uses almost the same words. Um, and he gives us the, what will be the content and the context of his revelation in the New Testament. So, so this is the way Christians received the gospel first. They received it when they went to Mass. And that's the way they received it pretty much for, for the first millennium and a half, because there were no printing presses, there were no media, there was no other way to get the Bible. You couldn't buy a Bible. Mm-hmm. You had to get it by going to Mass. And even if you could, you were probably illiterate, I would imagine. Yes, and it would be fabulously expensive. My wife was telling me about a novel she read, and the way they showed that people were wealthy is that they, they owned 12 books. Well, I think just about everybody today owns 12 books. Uh, you know, you, you, you can't imagine a time when only the, the, the top, the top level of the wealthiest people could afford to own 12 books. Uh, so yes, most people were illiterate. They couldn't get their hands on a Bible, so there was no Bible study to be done. You went to Mass, and you, you heard the Gospel proclaimed, you heard the Old Testament readings proclaimed, and then they were, they were unpacked. They were interpreted by the preacher. So this was where you went for an encounter with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was active in the preaching. The Holy Spirit was active in the hearing of everyone in the congregation. So this is where the Word came alive when when the people went to Mass. You mentioned the Old Testament. I was thinking of the return of the Israelites after the Babylonian capture, their... their, when they finally got back to Israel, they stood outside, and correct me, I'm going to get everything wrong, all the details wrong. They stood outside, and for hours, um, they listened, man, woman, and child. They listened to the yes. Word of God being read to them. Yes, that's the way it was at the time of Josiah, the reforms, and at the time of Nehemiah. They stood outside, and they received the Word of God that way. And St. Paul, in his time, said, faith comes by hearing, 
And Paul, in his letters, actually left instructions for those who would read the letters aloud in the assembly. The book of Revelation also comes with instructions for the lector, the the liturgical lector. So once we get beyond the New Testament, we find that so many of the writings of the fathers assume that the scriptures will be proclaimed in the assembly, the Eucharistic assembly, the sacramental assembly. This is the moment of grace that has been willed by God. That's why Jesus instituted the Eucharist in the way he did and then commanded us to do this in remembrance of him. And how does that change our reception of the Word of God? From I'm sitting at, at home, I do some Bible reading every night, and I read my gospel for 15 minutes. How is that different from when I'm sitting in my daily Mass and, or I stand to receive the gospel from, from, our, from our priest? Well, first of all, I don't want to undercut any of that, and I don't, want, I don't want to minimize any of it. It's important that we do Bible study. It's great that we have all of these these tools at our disposal. I can have the Bible in several languages on my smartphone. These are all great advances, and we should make the most of them. Um, but the time, the graced time for the proclamation of Scripture and for the hearing of Scripture is in the context of the liturgy. There we're standing with our fellow Christians. We're standing united with everyone uh, on earth and everyone in heaven. Uh, this is, this is the, the totality of the communion of saints worshiping together. There is not a, a, a more powerful, gr- powerful moment of grace than, than we have when we're at Mass. This is, this is what the Bible was designed for. This is the way of, of um, biblical religion from the beginning. So our reception of the Word at Mass, it's, it's a different experience for us? I mean, is, is there a different action of the Holy Spirit when we receive during Mass? I'd say absolutely. You know, we can see that in the writings of the Fathers. You have the story of Anthony of Egypt and how he was a simple soul. He went to Mass, he heard the Gospel, it changed him. Next time he went to, went to Mass, he heard the Gospel, it changed him more because he had that openness to the Word of God, which is active. It's not something we're studying like we did when we were in high school, and we were in geography class or whatever, and trying to learn all the spots on the map. It's not information that we're downloading. It's, it's the Holy Spirit working in our hearts, working in our minds, bringing us closer to Himself, closer, closer to Almighty God, and, and transforming us. And what about the rest of the parts of the liturgy? How does that inform our, our reception of the Word of God? Well, for one, uh, they're all deeply scriptural. So many of the lines of the Holy Mass come almost directly from the Bible, if not directly from the Bible. They're lines just lifted and rearranged uh, so that so that they're um, they're so that they they express the worship of the people of God. So so the rest of the the, the liturgy is also deeply biblical. Uh, we're 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 absorbing the Word of God all the time that we're at Mass. Um, so, so it doesn't it doesn't really stop. There are those concentrated parts where we do read directly from the Bible, but all of the rest of it is biblical too, and it connects us with the congregations in the Bible. Acts two forty two says that this was the life of the early church that they met for the teaching of the apostles and the communion, the breaking of the bread and the prayers. Teaching of the apostles and the communion, the breaking of the bread and the prayers. Those four actions come together when we go to mass. And that's still the case today. It's always been the case. To be a Christian is to go to Mass and mm-hmm. to, to, uh, to experience the Word of God in that context. 
You know, there's, there's unfortunately a lot of people, there are a lot of people these days who feel they are Christians, they are Catholics, but they don't make it to Mass. And I don't know, I don't have the actual, the number at my fingertips, but it's a sort of a scary statistic when I hear it. Many people that are not going to Mass on Sundays, or let alone other days, but why is this such a, I mean, I can think of a thousand reasons why, but from the perspective of your book, of, of, your, of, this, of this talk that we're having, uh, about scripture and liturgy and the early church. Why is this a huge mistake? I think it's because we've lost sight of the supernatural. They don't have a clear idea of what's happening at Mass. What they, and sometimes they'll say something like, well, I'm not being fed when I go there. And what they mean by that is, I'm not being entertained. Mm-hmm. I'm not being shocked. I'm not being, uh, you know, roused in, a, um, in my senses at the time, because there are other experiences in town, some of it, uh, you know, some of them at Christian churches, where they do try to rouse you, where they do try to get an emotional response. But really, this isn't about an emotional response. It's not about entertainment. It's not about manipulation of you. What is going on is going on in reality, that the sacraments are there and they're there in power, that God is present, that Jesus Christ is there, body, blood, soul, and divinity, and that changes everything. We can't see this with our eyes. We can't, we can't taste it with our tongue and know that it is so just from the evidence of our senses. So it's unlike anything else in our experience, because we learn everything else through our senses. But this is this, uh, this really invasion of the, the material uh, by, by the spiritual, by God himself. Um, we need to recover that sense of the sacred, that sense of the holy, that sense of this moment as something that's set apart, and, and it has a purpose, and it has a reality that's invisible to our senses. I see a couple of problems with, with the way we're relating people to the Mass in reference to what you're saying. Number one, sometimes the mass doesn't, isn't, doesn't feel reverent. It doesn't feel different from other things that we do. Maybe people come to the mass not very, they're not dressed up and the, the atmosphere is very casual. Um, there's a lack of incense and things like that. That Those are markers for reverence. And, and I know that they're not the mass. The incense is not the mass. And uh, but but it, it does give us that otherworldly feeling that we say, oh no, here now I separate myself from the rest of my life and I and I, I come to this time where, where I connect with God and with, with my fellow Catholics. Do you agree that that could be a problem, the lack of reverence? Absolutely, you know, because, uh, you know, we, we learn from what we see, uh, we learn from, uh, from what other people do. We're part of a society in the Church, and when we don't see people genuflecting before the tabernacle, when we see people just crossing in front of it or, or laughing and joking in front of the tabernacle, then we don't we don't get the sense. We mm-hmm. never, we never acquire the sense that there is something sacred about that place. There's something special about this. There's something unique about it. And I think that, that, that habits like this need to start in the family. We need to be very careful when the children are very small that we cultivate a sense of reverence. And the reverence is shown in deeds that we do bend our knee. We do genuflect. We try to do it right. We dress differently on Sunday from every other day of the week. Um, and we, we don't arrive breathless five minutes late for Mass as a habit. Uh, we don't, you know, leave during the, the last hymn. We, we arrive 
arrive early, we leave a little later. Um, and uh, and we, we show that this is a time when our hearts belong entirely to Jesus Christ. We can show that through our deeds. We need to show it to our children. We need to show it through our grandchildren. Increasingly, studies show that grandparents have a profound effect in, um, in, in the moral formation and uh, the religious formation of, of their grandchildren. Another issue, and I wonder if you agree, is a lack of, of a lack of communicating the obligation of going to church. And I have found very often that um, people say, "Well, the children, the young people, need to want to come to church." But I have felt that it's more effective to say, "You must come to church. You're a Catholic, and this is your responsibility and your obligation." And then once you get into the habit of coming, then all these other all the wonders of, of the Mass start to start to penetrate your being. What do you think? Yeah. Well, I think I, I, I need to want to, um, to obey the traffic signals, for example. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yes. But, but, but you know, uh, whether, whether or not I want it, I still need to obey the traffic signals. Uh, those laws, the traffic laws, just like the laws regarding the Mass, are there for my good. They're there for the good of my children, so my children can feel safe crossing the streets. Um, so we need to keep those laws and not see them as something burdensome, something onerous, but something that's in place for, for, for my individual good, but also for the good of us all as a society. We all need to be there for ourselves primarily, but also for each other. We need to be there to support the others in the church. We are a family, and family needs to spend time together. The church asks so little of us, its members, so little. The laws of the church are minimal. If we can't comply with that, then we're in pretty bad shape. Well, I think people make the mistake of thinking that uh, freedom is the first, the first virtue, that people have to choose everything that they do, when, when the truth is, is that we have to train ourselves up to choose the good things, no? Yeah, and, and we have to understand what freedom is for. Mm-hmm. You know, freedom is for our own good, for the good of others. Freedom, we're free so that we can seek virtue, so that we can grow closer to God, so that our life has a purpose, and that we're, we're giving purpose to the lives of others. We, we need to lean on each other. We need to be with each other as a church. Um, uh, we're not going to understand this if we look at freedom as, um, as something that's conferred on us by entertainment, something that's conferred upon us by uh, by our smartphones, you know, we need to to break break from that idea. Now, there's there's the real shackles we're under is this this idea that um that that we need to be entertained all the time that we need we need to have me time, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> in, in great abundance. And and people seem seem to want that. They seem to forget about others. Um, it's almost it's almost like a narcissistic society uh, rather than a self giving society. It's mm. uh, it's it's tragic, really. At the same at the it, same time, people are are yearning for meaning. Meaning they they seem to go to all these different places to find some spiritual truths that they can wrap their hands around while all this at the same time they're they 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 are often ignoring the deep spiritual truths of the faith they already have 
Yes, yes, absolutely. And this has been tested by, by not only centuries, but millennia, you know, that, that we have the lives of the saints before us. These people knew true happiness, true connection, you know, and, and, uh, and, and true love in the community. Uh, and, and we can learn that from them. We can be fulfilled in these ways. Again, these are proven methods. It's not something that's just out of the gate from the latest thing that calls itself science or the latest thing that, um, that comes from Silicon Valley. This is, uh, this this is, this is truth. This is solid truth. It's been proven over the millennia. Mike, we only have a couple minutes left, but I want to ask you a question and then have you tell um, our listeners about your book and where they can buy it. Um, how, in your book, uh, how did the early uh, fathers, how did the early church uh, live this special liturgical time that we're in, the, 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 the season of Lent? Well, it varied from place to place, but in, in, in many places, it was, it was a pretty severe fast. Uh, it was a, a bread and water fast, and, and, that was, uh, and that was pretty universal. You know, you might have, have something beyond that, like, like wine with a meal or, uh, or, or meat on a Sunday, but for the most part, Lent was, was a, a period of a fast, and they looked at, at it that way for several reasons. One is they were training themselves up for the real possibility of martyrdom. You know, and in order to to put yourself forward as a martyr, you uh, you you might you, you would have to live an incredible level of detachment. Well, Lent was a time when we learned detachment from the things of the world and and attachment to the things of the spirit, the things of heaven. Uh, we we learned detachment to God. So Lent was a time for training in that sense. It was a time of purification, for getting rid of the things that um that that were that were harmful to us or um or or could be obstacles between us and God. So we would concentrate on vices during that time and, and putting them away from our lives. So there was a lot happening on a lot of different levels, and it was observed in different ways throughout the world. And it's still that the case today. Every country has its own customs for Lent, and, uh, and, and, uh, and we all have the same purpose, really. We're trying to, to purify ourselves of, of worldly attachments, and we're trying to attach ourselves ever more to God. Well, thank you, Mike, for connecting us back to the early fathers and the early church and the wonders of the Mass and the liturgy. How can our listeners buy your book? Well, the best price is going to be at CatholicBooksDirect.com, CatholicBooksDirect.com, but it's also available everywhere else you buy books. And, uh, and if you can get it from a Catholic bookstore, that's the best thing you can do because they're the people who are, who are doing the business as an apostolate. And that's true of Catholic Books Direct as well. Well, thank you very much, and have a wonderful rest of your Lent, and a happy Easter, Mike. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Gracie. It's been great. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation Jesus wants to have with us in this Sunday's Gospel, which will be eyewitnesses at one of the most powerful confrontations in all the Gospels. When various scribes and Pharisees dragged before Jesus a woman caught in the very act of adultery, asking whether it was licit to stone her to death. Last Sunday, as you remember, Jesus preached to us the parable of the prodigal son, which stressed the father's undying love for every wayward child the meaning of genuine repentance, and the sadness of those who can't share their father's joy. 
In this Sunday's Gospel, that story about God's forgiveness takes on life. In the encounter of Jesus with the woman living a dissolute life, and with the hardness of heart of all the older brothers who are trying to get her executed, rather than striving to bring her to conversion and salvation. Just as Jesus wanted us last week to identify with the prodigal son, so he wants us to see ourselves in the woman caught red-handed. Just as he wanted us to recognize that often we can behave like the older brother in the parable who resents mercy given a sinful sibling, so too he wishes us to drop whatever stones are in our hands and use even others' sins as a reminder of our own. And just as in last week's parable, he wanted to illustrate God's infinite merciful love and joy whenever one of his children is reconciled to him. So today he hopes that we will come to hunger to have his life-changing experience with his mercy as he did with the adulterous woman. For this desired Lenten spiritual metamorphosis to take place, we first have to identify with the woman in the gospel. By God's mercy, probably none of us have had our sins exposed in all their shame and humiliation before the mobs. This is a far more common occurrence today, however, than in in the ancient world. The metastasis of tabloid journalism, the rise of social media, and the popularization of the sins of gossip and detraction have made the destruction of others through the publication of their sins or presumed sins widespread. So many politicians, celebrities, even churchmen and women religious have been dragged to the front pages, stoned with millions of likes and shears and vitriol in comment boxes. But the phenomenon has also engulfed those with no major public profile, including teens and children who have been so humiliated by cyberbullying or sexting scandal that they have tragically submitted themselves to the death penalty. In my ministry for seven years, serving as a chaplain for the Sisters of Life in New York, I met so many girls and young women whose lives were turned shamefully inside out because they were caught red-handed, pregnant outside of marriage, modern Hester Prins branded with scarlet letters, dealing with the reality that so many of those closest to them were the ones with stones aimed at them and at their sons and daughters growing in the womb. So we know that the drama of this Sunday's gospel scene is constantly being replayed, and we know many of the characters under the lights. Even if, however, we have not been similarly exposed to public shame, each of us is called to identify personally with the adulterous woman, because God has revealed to us repeatedly, especially through the prophets Jeremiah, Isaiah, Hosea, and Ezekiel, that every sin is an act of adultery, because it's being unfaithful to the spousal covenant of love we have entered into with God. Even though others may not have hauled us into public places, we know that every serious sin still has a death penalty attached to it, an eternal one, which is why we call this type of sin mortal. This is just a consequence of such sins, because it's ultimately chosen in sin. Just like the prodigal son, in order to seize his inheritance, treated his father as if the father were already dead, so through sin we treat God the Father as if he is dead, as if we want to leave his home, as if we want to go far from him and waste the inheritance of the treasure of grace he's given. We squander our dignity, we descend morally beneath even the pigs, and we push ourselves in the direction of definitive self-alienation from the Father and his love. It's important in Lent to face this reality with brutal honesty, because unless we recognize what we pray at the beginning of Mass, that we have greatly sinned by our own most grievous fault, we don't really need a Savior. Unless we recognize that we're sick and need of a doctor, 
we won't appreciate either the medicine of mercy or the divine physician who dies to dispense it. This is the chief message of salvation history. Through his prophets, God not only reminded Israel of its infidelity, but showed his own faithful love, that even though Israel had chosen to convert with idols of their own making, even though Israel had repeatedly chosen to sin, God's will was to forgive and purify her. These prophecies were fulfilled when Jesus himself came. Jesus didn't die on the cross for sinners who were strangers to him. He died for his bride. He died for us. He, who with his sinless mother was the only one who fully merited to be able to cast a stone, took the stones, the nails, the beating intended for us, and died out of love so that we wouldn't have to die. And full of spousal love, he wants us to receive that mercy. That's what Pope Francis stressed nine years ago on the first Sunday after his election. He surprised everyone by taking the regular Sunday Mass at the Church of St. Anne just inside Vatican City gates. There, and in his first Angelus meditation an hour later, based on this Sunday's Gospel, he told the 300,000 assembled in St. Peter's Square and all the way down the Via della Conciliazione, God never tires of forgiving us. It's we who tire of asking for forgiveness. And then he prayed, May we never tire of asking for what God never tires to give. That brings us to the second point. Receiving God's mercy is meant to make us different than the mobs. The reason why Jesus' message of forgiveness was so difficult for the Pharisees and scribes to understand was because they themselves had never truly experienced forgiveness or a God who loves them so much that he does forgive them. Jesus knew that although they might not have been committing similar deeds with their bodies, they were committing them with their mind. How was it that these men ended up catching this woman in the very act of adultery? It's not as if she and the married man were caught in the middle of the temple area committing this sin. It's probably because they had been keeping their eyes on her for weeks, lusting after her, and then raiding the place where the act of adultery was taking place. Some church fathers speculate it was these sins that Jesus was writing on the ground as they awaited his verdict. Jesus' response showed far more than that he was a great defense attorney. He was seeing straight into their hearts. That's why he challenged them the way he did, because he knew that it was precisely because of their sin that they were trying to bring that woman to be stoned. The lesson for all of us is that we, having been forgiven, need to be on the side of sinners rather than on the side of the mobs. If we think we're fit to toss stones at others, those stones will in fact zero in on us as the target. When we pick up stones, rather, Jesus calls us to use them to beat our own breasts. If we're going to be truly Christian, we always have to embrace the sinner with love, try to bring the sinner alongside us to receive God's mercy, and with other sinners, hate the sin that brings death, and hate it out of love for God who gives life. This Sunday, as we prepare to receive in Holy Communion the same body that hung upon the cross, the same blood that dripped from the crown of thorns and the five wounds, we remember that the Lord went through all of this, to forgive us our sins. The judgmental Pharisees who were trying to condemn the woman in today's gospel were at the foot of the cross taunting Jesus as if he were a sinner himself. But from that cross, Jesus looked up to the Father and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then specifically to one repentant thief, he shared the fullness of that mercy. Today I tell you, you will be with me in paradise. He didn't condemn he forgave, and he told to go and sin no more. The Lord we meet at Mass is mercy incarnate, who has come to save us from death, 
was come to reveal the Father's true loving face. The Lord we meet is the bridegroom who washes us with water in the word and makes us anew his spotless bride, ready for the consummation of our own nuptial union that takes place in the marriage bed of the altar. The Lord we meet is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. How blessed are we invited to the supper of that Lamb. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy and you go with our prayers. 